This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. The Supreme Court returns to the bench on January 11th for the first argument session of 2021. It is a term full of transitions for the justices, with the most significant one being the replacement of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who died on September 18th with Justice Amy Coney Barrett. But this month, there will also be a new administration, which will mean not only a new Solicitor General, but also potentially some changes in the court's docket. And of course, this is all happening in the middle of a pandemic that has killed over 350,000 Americans and shut down the physical operations of the Supreme Court. Joining me to discuss all of this is the publisher of SCOTUS blog, Tom Goldstein, who's argued 44 cases at the court. Tom, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's start by looking back at the term so far. Obviously, one of the the biggest developments was the death of Justice Ginsburg and then the quick confirmation of Justice Barrett, who has been on the court for almost three months now. What impact have you seen from her confirmation? Well, you would really look at the court's output. And because the court hasn't issued much in the way of decisions from the argued cases, you really have to look at the non-argued motions docket, applications docket. And there you really do see some significant changes. There are a number of issues on which the Chief Justice had been aligned with the court's more liberal members on questions related to religion, for example, and including particularly when you deal with the ability of the government to restrict uh, religious assembly, church assembly, and the like uh, in light of the pandemic. And with Justice Barrett having joined the court and the court having become materially more conservative as a result, some of those cases are starting to come out the other way. So we're seeing basically what we expected, and that is there were some questions and continue to be some questions in which the Chief Justice is the ideological center of the court except that uh, he no longer is because there is now a fifth more conservative vote. So what do you expect to see from her in the future? But both, I'll break this down sort of in the short term, meaning the rest of the term, and then looking two or three or four years out. Well, it's important to realize that you don't really know how someone will vote or behave as a Supreme Court justice until a few years in. There are some things on which she clearly has well-established views about the meaning of the Constitution, where probably we can uh, give some competent predictions. But even with the other the court's other conservative votes, with uh, the Chief Justice, with Justice Gorsuch, with Justice Kavanaugh, there are some issues which they don't uh, vote in ideological lockstep. So it's it's dangerous to make really strong predictions. I think what you can probably predict is that with Justice Barrett on the court, the court as a whole is going to be significantly more conservative. Because even if the chief, Justice Barrett, Justice Gorsuch, uh, one of them were to vote with the left, that wouldn't matter. There are effectively six conservative votes, and they only need five. And so both in terms of the court's output and also the kinds of cases the court takes up, I think we should expect the law to shift pretty aggressively to the right. So Let's go back and talk a 
a little bit more about the court in the pandemic and in particular oral arguments. The court in May held its first telephonic oral argument and then they have resumed that in the fall and you argued remotely in October. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it is very strange. Uh, we're used to seeing a certain number of people who we think about a lot <coughs> and we're used to getting kind of the visual feedback. We're used to a particular style in which we're answering, answering questions and then different justices can and very often will jump in. And this process is one that's much more regimented. It's kind of down the order of seniority. And it is one in which other people aren't interjecting and there are strict, pretty strict time limits on how much uh, a justice can go on in asking follow-up questions. So it's a pretty radically different experience. And even the justices perceive it that way. So for example, Justice Thomas now asks questions and he didn't before. In terms of whether it's better or worse, hmm, it really depends on what you're looking for. The, I would say that it's less coherent, weirdly. You might think it'd be more coherent because there are fewer interruptions, but the thing about the interruptions is that they continued a line of inquiry and could push on you pretty hard. And this is just kind of bouncing around much more between issues and perspectives so that it's harder for the justices to pull the threads on different lines of argument and harder for the advocates to really push uh, a position and really elaborate on it. On the other hand, because it's less chaotic, you can actually say some more and get more in as the advocate. So it has its upsides and its downsides. So, but I will certainly think that when the court does get back into the courtroom, uh, which I suppose will be next term, they'll never come back to this. They really, I think, like it the way it was, except for Justice Thomas. Do you think, you know, you've said, you just said you don't think that they will be back in the courtroom this term. Do you think that this is the format that they're going to use for the rest of the term? They're, you know, having settled on it, they're not making any changes, even though it is imperfect and there's been some criticism of the format. I mean, it's uh, worse than anything but the alternatives. Sure. The question is, what would you put in its place? The Zoom. <laughs> Zoom. Can you see? Imagine them uh, all on video. We don't actually know whether they are on video together. It's possible because they're, you know, they try and find some ways of apparently signaling, the chief signaling that someone's time is up and the like. But they uh, have, appreciate the anonymity that comes with not being seen. That's been a big part, I think, of them not having televised cameras inside the courtroom. We might well see, by the way, them continuing audio that's live once they are back in the courtroom. It's a little bit hard for them to justify abandoning that practice since it seems to have gone pretty smoothly. But in terms of how they would do remote, remote oral arguments, there are just too many of them to act like a three-judge court of appeals panel and just let each of them jump in on top of each other. I think they believe that would be anarchy. So they're kind of stuck with this other than the possibility of adding a visual element that I don't think any of them wants. Is it more exhausting somehow to try and, and deal with the, the telephonic oral arguments or is it, did you not really notice a difference? It's exhausting in the sense that it's different. You know, we're used to doing things a certain way with a certain set of people in a certain format. 
And this is new and different, and it presents new technological challenges, new logistical challenges. Um, it also varies in some unusual ways. Sometimes the Chief Justice will kind of do another round. He'll invite you to sum up at a somewhat different time, where he, all he's trying to do is balance out the time between the different sides, and that can be very complicated when you have two lawyers on one side arguing and only one on the other. So the, the only thing that's exhausting about it is the novelty. I think, interestingly, advocates who are arguing for the first time or among the first times probably would find this easier because there's less unnerving stuff of going into the courtroom, being in front of them, the pageantry of it. This is a kind of leveling process that makes it a lot like arguing in front of a court of appeals and arguably even easier than that. Uh, you are able to focus on just the question that's in front of you from the one justice. Um, so overall, it's probably easier on the advocates and more frustrating on the justices, many of whom probably want to ask follow-up questions to continue a line of argument and don't get to. Interesting. Interesting. So one thing that hasn't changed during the pandemic has been the shadow docket, you know, this separate docket of emergency applications that the court decides, you know, sometimes dealing with COVID recently, usually without much, without oral argument and usually without much in the way of explanation. Um, you know, Steve Vladek at the University of Texas has chronicled the extent to which the Trump administration has gone to the wells more over four years than the Bush and Obama administrations combined over 16 years. What do you think is going to happen with the Biden administration? Do you think whoever the next SG is, is going to dial it back? Yes, I think that's true for a few reasons. The first is that the Solicitor General for the Biden administration is likely to have a more traditional perspective on not quote unquote, running to the Supreme Court. But even more important than that, the reason the Trump administration went to the Supreme Court so much was that there was a disalignment between the Trump administration and the lower courts and an alignment between the Trump administration and the Supreme Court. And so you had a situation in which more liberal judges in California, in the Ninth Circuit more broadly, and in other courts of appeals were enjoining or overturning various Trump administration policies that the Supreme Court would be much more sympathetic to. And that was just happening over and over again. You know, I do think that there were times where the Trump administration went overboard, you know, applications to sanction lawyers and the like. But in the main, their views were vindicated. And that is, they not only went to the Supreme Court a lot, they won a lot. Mm -hmm. And the difficulty for the Biden administration is even if their policies run into a bunch of uh, problems before Trump appointed judges in the lower courts. It's not like the Supreme Court's going to save them. Right. Sure. It's very, very, very hard to see the policies where, you know, a lower federal court enjoins something the Biden administration wants to do. And they're like, ah, my friends they are at the <laughs> Supreme Court of the United States. Sure. That makes sense. Um, so speak another going back again to the idea of the shadow docket and election law, there was a lot of pre-election day litigation, but we wound up not having 
you know, what many people had, had worried about out loud, which was the sort of Bush versus Gore two, a sort of outcome determinative post-election litigation. We did have Texas versus Pennsylvania, the effort by a group of states led by Texas to overturn the results of the election in four states. You wrote an editorial for SCOTUS blog that was the blog's first editorial, uh, I believe. So talk a little bit about sort of your thought process and then you know, that you urged the Supreme Court to decimate the application by Texas, and they didn't exactly do that. No, but, uh, you know, it's not, they're not done with the election stuff. Um, there, Don't say that. <laughs> there are other cases that have been pending there for a long time, as we know, and the court hasn't disposed of them. So, yeah, it is interesting in the 17-ish years that the blog has been around, it is obviously focused very much on trying just to have an objective take on what's going on at the court because we do want there to be a lot of trust in what the blog says. Um, but it, you know, there also comes a time in which I do think it's okay for the blog to take a position that isn't, you know, it, the, the editorial wasn't kind of like, we read the Constitution this way, the Supreme Court ought to read it this way, but rather was. Uh, my felt sense that objectively, and this was reflected in the views of a lot of conservatives, what was going on here was fundamentally anti-democratic. And also the reason that I you know, went out of my way to write it is that I think that the conservative justices at the Supreme Court have a unique voice here. And as there are going to be um, fanboys of Donald Trump who really don't want to hear anything other than that he won and this election has been stolen and those people are effectively lost. Uh, but there are a number of other conservatives who still have a deep and abiding respect for the Supreme Court of the United States. They know that multiple justices were appointed by Donald Trump and those people are not liberal hacks. And that if the court as an institution were to come together and push back and uh, against these efforts to overturn the election and say, look, the courts have taken a hard look at this. There is no reason to doubt the validity of the election, that that would have restorative effect for the democracy, our democracy because it would cause a material number of people to say, okay, uh, I can really trust that the election was uh, safe and sound and fair and I should respect the outcome of it. Um, you know, the court doesn't really do stuff like that. The court's uh, effort to keep itself out of the political fray generally involves it resolving things on a, a minimalist basis. That's exactly what they did in Texas versus Pennsylvania and just saying like, there's no standing here. So, you know, there's nothing for us to do. I still have some hope that the court will, uh, with respect to the still pending cases when it decides that they're moot, uh, and therefore doesn't resolve them, explains that they're moot because there was a free and fair election and Joe Biden is the president and people ought to respect that. Um, do I think that's the most likely outcome? No, but I would say every day where the president of the United States takes what I personally regard as kind of fundamentally anti-democratic steps uh, and attacks the court and its members personally, the court may decide 
to push back in the only way that it can through its opinions. The court is scheduled to hear argument. It, it, the court released the calendar for its February session just before New Year's. And two of the cases in the February session are cases involving funding for the border wall and then the Trump administration's remain in Mexico policy for immigrants who are seeking asylum. And there's been a lot of talk about the prospect that the justices won't ultimately hear those arguments because the Biden administration is likely to reverse course on those policies. Can you talk a little bit, uh, not even so much about the substance of those cases, but about the process by which those cases could become moot? And then more generally, when, when you have a transition from a Republican administration to a Democratic administration or the other way around, um, what happens to cases that are politically charged or even not so politically charged, but there's you know, sort of fundamental disagreements? Sure. So the starting place is the fact that the Solicitor General's office represents the institutional United, interests of the United States, not any individual administration, or it's supposed to. And what that means is that with respect to nine out of 10 things that the Solicitor General's office does in the Supreme Court, you know, any administration would take the same position. We think this person, you know, this is a crime or, you know, this federal statute is constitutional, that sort of stuff. But there are the exceptions that prove that rule. There are the exceptions of things that vary between administrations. Now, the an incoming administration that has different views tries to kind of uh, use its chits wisely. It doesn't want to just reverse course on a bunch of different things because that undermines the institutional role and integrity and respect of the office as a whole if it's just viewed as you know, reflecting the view of one presidential administration. But on high profile things like, for example, the wall or important immigration policy and a few other things, the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act, for example, uh, where a Biden administration is going to have different views, it really can uh, do things that literally or effectively moot a case in either of two, either or both of two ways. Number one, it can just get rid of the policy. If there is a attempt to prospectively enjoin the executive branch from spending money on a border wall, and the executive branch says, we are not spending money on a border wall, well, then there's no, new, there's no case or controversy anymore, no matter what legal position the Solicitor General takes. So, you know, they might do that, or so too with Remain in Mexico. If the, on day one of the Biden administration, they say, we're not doing that anymore, then the Solicitor General says to the Supreme Court, you know, this is moot. The second thing the administration can do is change its legal position on a pending controversy. That would be something you would see more with the Affordable Care Act, because the statute is there. It's not like there's a policy that the Biden administration is going to change. The Trump administration has said the statute's unconstitutional. The Biden administration, no doubt, will turn around and say, no, 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 it's constitutional. Um, and that is relevant but less significant because the justices, particularly cases like that one that have already been argued, have their views. And you know, everybody knows that the Biden administration's views will be different. It wouldn't really be likely to change the outcome. It's the former category where they actually change the policy, the rule, the thing that's being challenged uh, that's most likely to have uh, an immediate effect. In terms of how they do it, well, on January 20th, when the new administration uh, takes office, supposedly, uh, the, um, 
there won't be a solicitor general because one won't have been confirmed in all likelihood. There isn't even a nominee. So there are a series of uh, lawyers inside the Department of Justice and positions throughout the government that are known as the day one uh, in, uh, staff. And that is deputies in different offices who don't require Senate confirmation go in and essentially take the wheel. And so we would expect on January 20th, there'll be someone who is designated as the principal deputy solicitor general, who's the one deputy level political appointment in the SG's office. And that person will go in and will have an understanding with the administration through consultations with the White House about things that they want to reverse course on. And we'll, you know, on that limited number of things, write letters to the Supreme Court expressing the views of the incoming administration, even before there's a solicitor general. And so that'll be true, you know, throughout the government. Uh, that's how it will work with the, the Solicitor General's Office and the Supreme Court. But throughout the Department of Justice, the Department of State, Commerce, everything like that, a whole new set of deputies will come in, take charge, and will uh, stop the implementation of Trump administration po policies that they disagree with as quickly as possible. Last question. Will there be any retirements in 2021? Justice Breyer is 82 years old. Well, he's 82 years young. Um, yeah, that is, I mean, it is, it is kind of middle-aged for a Supreme yeah, Court justice, but on the other hand, you know, we, we saw recently. We, I think that, you know, look, uh, the justices and I don't talk as much as we should, and so I won't say that I have <laughs> uh, you know, insider knowledge. I'll tell you how I would bet Justice Breyer would look at this question now that it's apparent that there's going to be a Biden administration, supposedly. Um, <laughs> I do think it's really likely that Justice Breyer is going to retire. It's just a question of when. He probably did learn the lesson of Justice Ginsburg's experience of being replaced by a Republican president in the Senate and will not want the same to happen with respect to him. I also think he probably sees a post-retirement public intellectual life. He can write a lot, give a lot of speeches, be celebrated a lot, and not feel like he's just you know gone back to Cambridge to sit at home. Um, the precise timing depends a lot on politics. Uh, and so I don't think you could say exactly when it will happen. But it would be shocking to me if we got past 2022 and he had not retired. Tom Goldstein, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Case Text, our sponsor, and to our production team, Katie Barlow, Katie Bart, Cal Goldie, and James Ramoser.